Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. I'm honored and delighted to welcome each of you today to our hot topic about employing F1 students who are on CPT or OPT and then who will transition to H1B status in the United States, most likely. Along with me are my two esteemed colleagues, Aaron Finkelstein, the managing attorney of the firm, who has been with the firm only 18 years or something in that range at this point. Um, clearly brilliant, creative, a strategist who back in the day processed green cards and H1s and just streamlining systems uh, for clients and speaks nationally and regionally for the American Immigration Lawyers Association and internationally. Actually went to the Bangkok District chapter and spoke in other parts of the world. Uh, the other speaker joining us on our panel today is attorney Anna Stepanova. And Anna has been our firm's resident expert because of her incredibly various sort of strong background within a variety of subjects, including but not limited to the fact that she was a designated school official or international student advisor at a major university in the United States. So clearly you have an esteemed panel. I will primarily act as the moderator, but I'm happy to also discuss certain issues as and when they come up. Uh, besides all of the issues that we're discussing, I know that Anna, um, on behalf of the Murthy Law Firm, uh, has worked with many of you as employers and maybe many others that are expecting to process uh, with, with respect to setting up STEM OPT, mentoring and training programs, Form 983s, and whatever else that you may require to ensure that you are fully compliant with F1-related regulations, the STEM OPT extensions, all of that good, cool, fun stuff. And for those who can't see Anna, she's nodding her head agreeing with me. Um, so as we said, we will be discussing all of these issues. The, the goal, of course, is to help each of you as employers or as employer representatives to set up your internal processes and procedures so that you can ensure compliance with both the F1 and the F1 OPT rules and the H1B program and I-9 rules and regulations that every employer must comply with. And then, of course, we're also going to discuss rules regarding work authorization for students and all of the changes that are happening with that. Um, and then we talked, uh, we will discuss a little bit more about the curricular practical training or CPT and the optional practical training or OPT for recent graduates or people who, uh, kids who are about to graduate. And um, if you are hiring foreign students, um, on CPT or OPT, obviously, you need to start understanding these sorts of issues. And then, of course, the timing of the filing of the H-1 petition, when their status F-1 uh, OPT expires or F-1 status expires or the OPT extension, those all can become very tricky and complex because you're talking about the F-1 cap-cap regulations, etc. So with that, if I can start, 
Aaron, with asking a little bit for you to explain about the curricular practical training and what are the options in terms of work for employers. Sure. So curricular practical training, also known as CPT, is for students who are still pursuing their course of study. One of the main requirements for CPT is that the training or the work that's being done is an integral part of the established curriculum. Generally, the training meets this requirement if the student registers it for academic credit or it is required by the program course of study. So it's not for the employer's benefit, then it's meant only for academic credit or if it is required by the program of study. So it sounds like if the if an employer now on the conference call says, then how does the CPD help me? So if, if in, incidental to the person's training, they're actually performing work, they can perform active employment. Uh, and they should be able to then, and the employer can get the benefit of that active employment. Uh, there what about al- the agreement? Is there any agreement requirement? So, yeah, there should also be an agreement between the school and the employer. Uh, this agreement is termed by the regulation as the cooperative agreement. Generally, the student needs needs to be enrolled full-time for a full academic year before becoming eligible for the CPT, for the curricular practical training. However, there are some exceptions to this requirement. Yeah, absolutely, Aaron. There are exceptions, and so you can think about um, main two main exceptions. And in my mind, you know, if I think about two specific groups of students who can start uh, CPT training in the first year, the first group would be uh, students enrolled in a program of study that does require such um, hands-on practical training in the first year of study. Very commonly, it would be something like an MBA that does require that the student uh, just from the very first semester involves uh, himself or herself in in this particular training experience, hands-on training experience. The other group of people who may be eligible for CPT in the first year is... um, Uh, consists of students who are transitioning or uh, transferring from one uh, program of study to the other program of study. So if there was no interruption in F1 status between the two programs, then the second, the subsequent program will allow the student to be enrolled in CPT uh, starting from the first semester or second semester in the first year. Just to be clear, Anad, so you said certain MBA programs and also presumably some engineering programs because most of our clients would be more concerned about engineering programs that might allow the CPT compared to the Exactly. MBA, MBA was just an example, but okay. you're right. There are specific uh, other programs that do require, so you, you have to check if the student is actually eligible to start CPT in the first year. And if I want to do CPT, do I have to get a special EAD or work authorization from the government? Oh, that's the beauty of CPT authorization because uh, it doesn't require specific authorization or filing with USCIS. It will be authorized by the DSO. That's fantastic. So that's a great option. But of course, it has severe limitations, as we can see for most of us as employers. Um, Some of the other problems, so there's some clear plus points with the CPT, but then some of the common issues or problems that we notice is that the USCIS requires evidence of the co-op or cooperative agreement that Aaron just discussed and the curricular practical training or CPT must be an integral part of the program of study. 
And also the employer needs to make sure that the student's major uh, of study is directly related to the field of employment. An example of a problem CPT authorization is where the student is pursuing an MBA with a concentration in IT and is performing the CPT training work as a software engineer. Concentrations and minors should not be considered as the basis for CPT. That's exactly correct. What we also see as a common problem is when students transition to a new program of study, for example, and they start or continue in the same position as they previously held on, say, OPT, if there was a problem with the H-1B filing or something else, and they simply want to continue studying. So USCS is very aware of this issue, and they regard it as um, kind of a workaround uh, of the problem itself with the immigration rules, uh, which is understandable, but students and their employers should be aware of that as a problem because when somebody is working on CPT, it should not be uh, the student's goal um, because it's not consistent with the F-1 authorization. They should uh, and must uh, continue full-time enrollment in their program. So this is something um, that has been a problem in the past, and what we usually tell people who call us uh, for uh, legal advice in this matter, be very careful because you have to make sure that CPT remains uh, to be an integral part of the established curriculum and not a goal in itself. And you saw it, basically we want to be penny wise and pound foolish, both as employers and as employees, because by doing something like this where you're not, it's not an integral part of your program or you're somehow violating the terms and conditions of the CPT could end up where you don't get the one-year F1 OPT, and then obviously then you don't get the F1 STEM OPT extensions. So you can work for six months or a year, and then that ends up costing you not just one year in full-time CPT work study, but also in additional extensions, et cetera. So let's always be careful and mindful both sometimes as employers your employees will come and ask you to do this work for them or help them out but it, you need to reply and say although we're very tempted we really shouldn't be doing it because I remember when I was listening to the Murthy law from discussing this issue that there were some concerns and we need to be careful about that with CPT program training um, uh, and stuff like that so now let's jump quickly to the OPT What's the OPT and how does that, that, that work, Aaron and Anna? So OPT is optional practical training, and that does, in fact, require authorization from the USCIS. So that's a distinction, a very clear distinction from CPT. Uh, it's all, and it's, this is also not employer-specific during the initial one-year period. Uh, OPT can be authorized prior to and after the completion of study. So, for example, if you're doing pre-completion OPT, you can get it authorized for a maximum of 20 hours a week uh, when the school is in session. Like CPT, it has to be directly related to the student's program of study and is subject to the one full academic year of full-time enrollment before it can be authorized. But there are some exceptions. Uh, very recently, I spoke with a company that inadvertently cited um, a student employee on CP on I'm sorry on OPT before U.S. Uh, CIS issued the EAD, and that's unlike CPT, 
uh, as Aaron, you just mentioned, it does require authorization from USCIS. So what is very important to remember is that you can absolutely cannot start somebody in uh, an employment uh, in employment um, in a full-time or part-time position on OPT until that student shows you the EED card issued by USCIS. What's good about um, a situation when there is no EED is that the student does not start accruing the 90-day unemployment maximum until they actually receive the card from USCIS in the mail. So if, for example, in long pending petitions or applications where there was a request for evidence and the card is not issued until maybe four months into the uh, OPT, requested OPT period, nevertheless, the student would not uh, violate the 90-day unemployment maximum because they didn't start working on OPT because simply because there was no card. Um, so. Also, what you need to remember is that per student and exchange visitor program, uh, which is part of ICE in charge of CVIS and F1 program. Uh, also one called SCVP. SCVP, exactly. One of the permissible types of OPT employment is unpaid internship or volunteering. However, such unpaid employment uh, should not violate labor laws to satisfy the OPT requirement. And that's your job and your responsibility as an employer to make sure that if you don't pay uh, somebody on initial OPT, then it should be not be in violation of labor laws. In other words, um, if the position would normally require a salary, then it's probably not a good position for unpaid internship or volunteering. Now, and I have a question on one of these things. I saw that, for example, if there is a delay of four months or five months before the EAD is issued, so the validity period only comes back and says you have seven or eight months left. So I sometimes receive phone calls and they'll say to me, hey, I'm getting shorted on my 12 months. Are they really getting shorted? Is there anything you can do about that? There is nothing you can do about it. And that is, Aaron, because all OPT employment has to be completed within 14 months after the completion of the program of study. So sometimes what we see is um, when a student requests OPT in the first 12 months, but there is a delay, USCIS may move uh, the uh, authorization up and uh, not issue the EAD with the initially requested end date. But as long as it's not, the, the end date um, is not beyond the 14 months time frame, then they can just give the student um, on their own as much time as possible, but it, in any case, it cannot exceed 14 months after the completion of study. Wow. Always, there are all these little rules that one needs to be aware of. And of course, the big hot topic, of course, has been in the past six months, uh, within the past six months or so, is the STEM OPT extensions. As most of you probably are aware, that those who have graduated with a degree in science, technology, engineering, or mathematics, STEM, are potentially eligible for a 24-month extension of the um, OPT. So I don't know if we clearly said, but the F1 OPT, the normal period is 12 months. So for the STEM grads, it's an additional 24 months extension of OPT. So you're talking 12 plus 24, which is where we're hearing some pushback um, and concerns from the administration right now. 
So the STEM OPT employer, obviously with respect to this, must design and implement a formal training program, and all of these requirements are what has changed in the past few months on Form I-983. As I mentioned to you at the very beginning, Anna Stepanova here at the Murti Law Firm has done many I-983 programs, worked with employers, set up the system, told them how to kind of work with it so that it flows through smoothly, and then that could be used for every single uh, candidate that is on your that you plan to hire who needs to take advantage of the STEM OPT extension. And uh, that's a very good point, Sheila. Not only that we help employers fill out and complete 983s, but we start with... Uh, designing a corporate-wide policy that explains to all of the employees what their responsibilities, what their obligations are, and hopefully it will uh, allow them to have a much better grasp on uh, what the STEM OPT requirements are, because we do provide our clients with a manual that explains all of that. Wonderful. And just by way of explanation, there maximum you can get two lifetime STEM extensions. So that's quite a lot. So you can get, so if you finish a bachelor's degree, let's say in computer science, you get 12 months, you may get some CPT, but then if your CPT exceeds a certain amount, you may not be able to take advantage of um, the OPT. So be careful. So you have CPT, then you have OPT 12 full months if everything goes well full time. Then potentially if you're in the STEM fields, which computer science would be, you would have 24 months. That's finished bachelor's. Now, again, you do your master's for two years. Again, you get 12 full months and hopefully another 24 months with the STEM OPD extension. Again, we know that Trump has talked about modifying, eliminating, changing. We don't know exactly because, remember, the Department of Homeland Security is the agency that issues regulations on F1 students. And because it is the administration and Department of Homeland Security is part of the administrative branch, not the legislative branch or the judicial branch, uh, the president does have much greater leeway, but they would have to actually issue regulations and all of that and wait for the cooling off period. But at this time, it's two lifetime STEM extensions, STEM based on a previous degree as an F1 student, could also use a prior STEM degree from a U.S. institution to apply for the STEM extension, even if the most recent degree is not a STEM OPT eligible degree, though there are certain restrictions that apply. So that's a very good loophole, legal loophole in the regulations right now, Anna. Well, that's a good point. But there are very tricky rules that you that would may allow you to use the uh, two STEM extensions. It's important to understand that you cannot stack them. So even if um, you can use the previous degree for a second STEM uh, extension, it cannot be back-to-back. So you would have to follow the first year of OPT second time around. And uh, because you cannot do a first year OPT based on a second degree and um, on the same level, so you you could only do it at the high level. So for example, and you gave a very good example, when you do bachelor's first, you do OPT, you do STEM extension, and then you have to go to master's. You cannot do a, a second bachelor's. And you, uh, likewise, you cannot do master's uh, uh, three years of OPT and then do another master's. And that's a very common question uh, that our clients um, ask us all the time. 
What else um, happened with the new STEM LPT rule is that it made types of eligible employment much more restrictive. Uh, it has to you may you have to make sure as an employer that it um, directly relates to the uh, program of study. But not only that is that it it has. Uh, the student has specific goals, and you, your job is to help them achieve those goals in uh, furthering their education. Uh, the wage requirement is a, is a topic in itself because uh, nobody can quite figure out what exactly the rule implied when they said that the employer must agree to provide compensation commensurate with similarly employed individuals. Is it level one workers? Is it trainees? Uh, so this is something that we have to take uh, on a case-by-case -case basis. And when we have questions about wages, what kind of wages to pay to uh, student trainees in on STEM OPT, kind of varies from company What about to if company. a company says that we always hire fresh graduates and for the first three months, whether they're American citizens, permanent residents, other kinds of U.S. workers or students, we just check them out. It's like a true, it's like a probationary preliminary period. Would that then be able to excuse them from any kind of payment or would that be a problem? Anna? You just have to have a system and you have to be paying your workers. That's the bottom line. How how you can explain to USCIS or to ICE if they come to your workplace for a visit is a different thing. So that's the details uh, that we're trying to work out with our clients, um, all that matter. But the bottom line is, again, they need to have a system in place. And you have to understand that it's it cannot be unemployed, un, uh, unpaid, unlike the first year OPT. So the first year it could be unpaid. It's only after that in the STEM extension because by now you've already it, it has to had a paid. whole year where the child, where the student presumably now has that one year experience. Mm -hmm. The student. Well, interestingly, the rule says that you can pay them in kind. So um, what exactly that means? It could be. Uh, rolling lodging, yeah, mm -hmm. lodging. Mm -hmm. uh, but you have to also show that this is something that you also offer to other people, okay. uh, workers who are similarly situated. Okay. And what are the kinds of different reporting requirements? And how does the form? What kind of form do they apply? Oh, there for are. This, and what are the time frames? Right. There are all kinds of reporting requirements now for both the employer and the F1 student. So the student must submit the STEM OPT extension request on Form 765. Um, and uh, so I'm just going briefly over the additional um, in, uh, changes in, in, on, in the STEM OPT rule. Um, they, the STEM OPT rule also allow student, allows students to take 60 additional days of unemployment. Uh, what's also very beneficial for students is that they can travel with a pending STEM OPT extension during the cap gap after the expiration of the first year OPT EAD, which uh, never happened before. And we actually don't have much information about how it's actually implemented at this point because very few peop people actually use this benefit because they are c concerned about traveling. Especially uh, post uh, January especially 27th now, I, yeah, travel this, bans. Uh, this cap season it will be interesting to see if actually, actually some people will use it and how it's going to work. Um, so, What about the expanded list of STEM degrees? There are more degrees that are eligible for the STEM extension, which is a good thing. And um, what is also 
uh, a benefit is that somebody can apply for the STEM extension from the cap gap. So, for example, if somebody has a pending H-1B petition and it gets a very, very nasty-looking request for evidence and uh, the employer simply doesn't uh, think that they will be able to overcome that request, it may be worth a while looking into a possibility of filing a STEM extension at that point to buy yourself a little more time. Anna, what about if the STEM extension is pending? Are you able to work if your previous OPT expired? For 180 days. For up to 180 days. Yeah, so that's an automatic extension. Uh, and this is all because of the January 17th, 2017 effective rule that was issued in the prior administration right. by Obama that on November 17th, and it became effective two months later on January 17th. So as of now, you just file the extension. You can keep working for a maximum of 180 days while it's pending. Well, by under the regulation, they were supposed to give us a decision in 90 days. They figured out a way to get out of that put this 180-day extension in place, and I wonder what happens after 180 days if it's still pending. comes back like the old H-1B rules, which can only work for up to 240 days. Exactly. It does uh, look like um, something similar to that. Uh, my guess is that if the STEM extension application is not adjudicated or doesn't get a decision in 180 days, then the student may probably stay here in the period of authorization, stay waiting for the decision, but without uh, work authorization. Oh, boy. And I know that there's, uh, in terms of the employer reporting the termination or resignation, now they have five days as opposed to two days previously. So that's um, a, a little bit of a relief, yes. A little bit of a relief. But if you are traveling abroad as an employer or you get tied up or you're trying to juggle with all your other work, HR duties, which many small to mid-sized employers and companies tend to do, this could be very risky because it's very common to be out of the country for long periods of time. Uh, okay, so let's quickly transition to H-1B issues. Uh, many of you know that about the H-1 cap and the 65,000 general quota, 20,000 master's quota, and that whenever we file, the fiscal year starts on October 1st of each calendar year. And so this year it would be 2017, October 1st, 2017, but it is the start of fiscal year 2018, FY 2018, because U.S. fiscal year starts on October 1st and ends on September 30th. And... Um, we are estimating that there will be a much higher demand for H1s this season for a variety of reasons that I think Aaron is dying to explain and share with us. So, Aaron, can you explain a little bit about who's subject to the cap uh, to the cap, and how, why, why do you think all of this is going on? Okay, subject to the cap and predictions on reaching the cap. Uh, you know, though for us, I think we we approach it in a little bit more of a strategic way when we're looking for people who are subject to the cap. First, we simply look to see if the beneficiary had ever been approved for H-1B status previously. If so, then they were counted and they were counted against the cap. Then generally, they would not be subject to the cap. The next step after after we find that out is it's necessary to determine if the employment is cap exempt. Some employment is exempt from the need for a cap number. This includes employment at universities and their non-for-profit, not-for-profit affiliates, as well as non-profit and government research organizations. Also, physicians who've obtained waivers through the Comrade program are also exempt for the cap, from the cap. In terms of predictions, I think that this year the mantra is that, unfortunately, there's a lot of fear 
Uh, there's fear about the um, about the H-4 EAD program and what the potential timeline is and if the government's actually going to look to change those regulations from uh, 2016. There's fear about the STEM extensions because that's also something that's fairly recent, uh, the 24 months, and if the government's going to look to modify or change that. Uh, there's also fear of all these bills that are constantly being presented in the House or the Senate, bills that we don't think have any legs, but nobody really knows if it's going to transition or it's going to go forward. Uh, and so I think that because of the fear that's going around, a lot of people that otherwise would have waited to file into the cap or would have felt secure in the status and the employment authorization that they had, I think don't feel that same security right now. Also, I think a lot of companies who don't want uncertainty as to whether their employees can work or not work are feeling the same crunch. So if last year or the year before the number was about 33%, I think 26 to 33%, though some companies have reported to me up to 40% or more, um, I think the chances this year could be as little as one in four or one in five in terms of being actually counted in the quota. Okay, so that does not bode well because if I'm an employer and I'm investing hard-earned money, my profits, my income, and paying all these lawyer fees and government fees and all of that, you'll probably get back most of the government fees if the case is not accepted for processing. But if they accept it and then deny it, which they do because they do accept more cases for processing, I've lost my filing fees and my legal fees and all the other costs and the stress and the headache for me as an employer and the poor family that's relying on this who's devastated not to be selected. So, yeah, with the H4 EADs and everything going on with F1 stems and people, children getting scared, uh, who knows what's going to happen. So let's very briefly touch upon CapCap because we discussed it a little bit in passing. So if somebody's F1 status, OPT is expiring after April 1st and they file the H1 petition for start date on October 1st, then automatically they would get some kind of a CapCap protection to be able to stay and legally keep on working. Because without this, if you, those of you who remember from before the cap gap rules were regulations were issued by the Department of Homeland Security, kids had to stop working on the day their F1 OPT expired or they had to depart the United States, etc. So saying that, what specifically is required in order for the cap gap benefits to apply for both the employer and the employee? Anna? That's exactly the question. Not everybody realizes that not every pending petition uh, filed on behalf of a student is going to put that student on a cap gap and uh, provide um, him or her with a cap gap benefit. So there are a number of eligibility criteria, all of which have to be true for that student to be on the cap gap. First, the uh, the petition will, will, would have to be timely filed, and timely filed meaning that the student would still have to be in valid student status, and hopefully with uh, work authorization, such as OPT work authorization. Uh, and the petition would have to be filed with a request for change of status. So there are some petitions that don't have that change of status request um, marked uh, on the application form, and um, those are the petitions that will not put the student on cap gap. And um, the start so if date... they put cancellation processing because they're traveling abroad, that's, that's not, it, they've lost cap gap. Yes. But, but I thought you just said they can travel on cap gap and come back. But um, there are some specific 
travel issues, uh, the initial petition will have to request the change of status. And if you do um, travel, but if you travel, then you yeah, lose if you abandon your application uh, only you after it's approved. So there are specific rules for travel, and I think Aaron is going to talk about right. them as well. But um, that's, um, I, I think, uh, in a minute, let me just um, follow through with the list of uh, terms for the cap gap. So the uh, uh, start date of employment has to be requested as October 1st, so it's a cap subject petition. Um, status and work authorization for students on OPT will automatically continue until uh, October 1st through the end of September or until the H-1B cap case is rejected. Uh, including not being picked in the lottery, denied or revoked, or whichever happens earlier. And uh, in order to be eligible, F1 student must maintain their valid F1 status otherwise. Um, so uh, some people ask, well, what about my wife? What about my kids? They uh, are- Or husband. Or, or husband, a spouse, um, I meant to say yes. Uh, the F2 status will, uh, will be extended automatically uh, and no, action on uh, the part of the F1 student or their spouse or children will be required. Okay, okay. thank and, you. And just as an additional point, you know, there's, there's something that needs to just be very clear. The general rule is if you ever change status in the United States and you leave while the change of status is pending, that change of status portion, that I-94 portion that says you've transitioned to the new status, that automatically gets denied. So because I, it's deemed abandoned. Because it's law. deemed abandoned by law, uh, correct. And so when Anna is referring to the fact that you can travel during cap gap, cap gap is she's saying the automatic provision that allows your your F1 OPT to be deemed extended so that you can continue to work while you're waiting for October 1st to come around for you to transition to the new H1 status. That ability to travel is only after the change of status has been approved. So, for example, you do an April 1st filing, and on June 15th, you get your approval for your H-1B. That has to be a premium processing case, Aaron. Would have to be a premium yeah. processing case. Hopefully, you would have, hopefully, premium processing would okay. be giving us decisions by then. Um, in that situation, if you traveled then on cap gap between, say, June 15 and October 1st and you came back, that would not be an impediment for you to be able to transition to the H1 and move Because forward. you're coming back on F1 and then automatically on October 1st, the change of status would occur because you have an I-94 card presumably attached to your H1B approval notice for your employee. Okay, thank you, Aaron. And what about uh, events that affect the maximum period of the CAP-GAP extension? Can you clarify if there are any other events and how that works with SEVP and ICE? Sure. So the International Student and Exchange Visitor Program, or SEVP, which we've already mentioned is a part of the U.S., or perhaps not, is a part of U.S. Immigration and Custom Enforcement, again, ICE, is in charge of the student tracking program, uh, provided very detailed guidance on specific dates of termination of F-1 status conditioned upon specific events. Uh, this guidance could be used as a point of reference when one is trying to determine if he or she is able to benefit from the CAP-GAP extension provisions and how it would apply to the, his or her situation. So, so the only real guidance that's there uh, that you can see is the June 2nd. So they're saying that the cases should have been, so they're supposed to have been 
picked or in the lottery by June 2nd. So if your case was picked in the lottery, was picked in the quota, then you know that your cap gap extends beyond June 2nd and onwards. If you don't know if your case is picked in the quota or if your case has been rejected by June 2nd, the safest thing to do is to assume that you're in the grace period after June 2nd and to stop working until you get further proof that it's either been rejected or, in fact, that it's been accepted in the quota. Anna, can you give us some examples? Well, this is uh, what Aaron is saying. Uh, we've seen as a problem in, in um, the last several years when USCS gave um, or sent uh, rejected cases, rejected filings back after June 2nd, and that created a problem. Depending on the timing, uh, our best advice is for those who are affected to give us a call and let us parse it all out because uh, it could um, depend on a number of factors, very individual um, factors that would pertain to this or that situation. And um, to give general advice in this matter is not really uh, an easy task because uh, each person's situation is different. But what Aaron was saying, and if I can just try to clarify, you um, should assume um, that if your petition is properly filed, you should be eligible for the automatic extension until the uh, packet is rejected. However, if or uh, accepted for processing for that matter. However, if the uh, filing is rejected, then you should stop working and uh, hopefully consult an attorney because it really depends on the timing when that happens. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, so the next issue that's often asked and that I guess as you as employers are concerned about, will how will you know uh, if the student, the employee working with you on OPT has cap gap extension or protection? Would there have to be some kind of specific form to request the cap gap extension while filing the H-1B petition? And in fact, the petitioning employer should just know that by filing, that you as the employer would know that by filing the H-1B petition, which was timely filed, presumably right around April 1st or within the five days or whatever they give us for the random lottery, if it was timely filed to request a change of status within October 1st start date, as Anna just explained, and then until the receipt notice is issued by the USCIS, only either the petitioner employer or the attorney uh, who filed the case would know whether it was properly filed. So if it was properly filed, and once the USCIS then issues the receipt of that proper filing for the H-1 petition, the information is, will be in their system and it will update the student's CVIS record. Well, there are a number of updates that should happen in CVIS. Unfortunately, it doesn't always happen. Students are responsible themselves for checking with their DSOs regarding their CVIS record, if it has been updated with the extension or not. And if they do have a receipt notice, but the CVIS says that the um, uh, record has been completed or terminated, there is still a chance uh, for the DSO to file what's called the data fixed request with the SVP help desk and get that corrected. So that would be a student's responsibility to do that and to check with their DSO and see what's going on in their CVS record because if there is a, um, an accepted petition, 
then the uh, record should reflect that. And if it doesn't, that's a problem, but it should be a correctable problem. Uh, and also, students uh, will not be personally notified of a withdrawn or denied H-1B petition. And if you um, have somebody who are you, you are sponsoring, then it would be your responsibility to notify that uh, prospective or actual employee uh, if your petition has been withdrawn or denied so that they can make sure that they understand what's going on with their status. Okay, thank you, Anna. Just uh, FYI, timing-wise, I know we always try to wrap these up between 30 to 45 minutes, and we're actually at close to 40 minutes right now. So we don't have a lot of time, but we hope in the next three or four minutes we'll try to quickly wrap up a, a couple of the last remaining issues and then wrap this up so that you actually have very good knowledge on how to hire F1, CPT, and OPT students for your company following all of the rules. Aaron, what happens? Is the employee required to obtain a kind of new I-20 form to reflect that the student is in a period of cap-gap extension? So in some cases, yes. You have to, the key is to remember that you're dealing with SEVP, which is coming through Immigration Custom Enforcement, and you're dealing with USCIS. And so because you're dealing with two different uh, uh, agencies under the same group, so there may be an issue with some with the CBC CVS system uh, not being properly updated to reflect that an H-1B petition is filed. And then if it's not updated to reflect that H-1B petition is filed, it can create issues as to whether the system acknowledges there's cap gap, to whether the system is automatically going to uh, indicate that your I-20 was indicated as completed, and that could create potential problems. So uh, it is a good idea to make sure that the it is a good idea to make sure that the system does reflect it. And, uh, and if it doesn't, the DSO would need to issue a new I-20 reflecting the student's eligibility for the H-1B cap gap and the extension of the student status. This should be sufficient for employment and for I-9 purposes okay. as well. Thank you very much, Aaron. What about the student where, who is a beneficiary of an H-1 petition filed for change of status? Could that person benefit from an automatic extension if the petition is filed during the grace period? F1 OPT grace period after completion of the entire 12 months of OPT employment. And we kind of touched on this already, but just to sum it up, um, if you have somebody whose petition is filed while they are in their 60-day grace period, then they can still continue staying in the U.S. and they will be on the cap gap, but because they didn't have employment authorization as of the date of filing, then the employment authorization is not going to be extended. So they have no other choice but to wait until October 1st and hoping that the petition will be approved and only then they will be able to resume employment. That's too bad. Okay, Aaron, uh, one last question for you. Once the H-1 has been approved with the change of status, can the student remain in F-1 OPT status and use the remaining time in OPT? No, because once the H-1B petition is approved uh, with a change of status, the beneficiary has to begin the H-1B employment on the petition validity period. That's the H-1 validity period. So any remaining time that might have been left from OPT cannot be reclaimed. It just ends right there. Okay. Well, this is a very uh, strict rule, but if you change him or if your employee changes his or her mind before October 1st, what they need to do in order to continue on OPT is to 
um, for the employer to withdraw the petition, the approved petition now, and uh, hopefully uh, get uh, a confirmation from USCS that the petition was withdrawn. Then the student should take that withdrawal acknowledgement to the DSO. The DSO would request a data fix from SVP so that the CVS would now reflect that the H1B petition was withdrawn. And all of it must happen before the October 1st start date for the student to uh, remain on LPT as opposed to uh, automat automatically change into H-1B status on October 1st. Okay, so as she, as Anna just said, there is no data fix possible once the October 1st start date has already happened. And I know most of you as employers probably don't want to spend all this money to have somebody removed and put in, but where it comes into play is if the employee has worked with your competition or with some other company, then comes to you and says, I have seven more months or eight more months left on my two-year STEM OPT extension. I don't want to work with company A, but I want to work with you, company B, then you have to do all of this. So for those of you who were trying to shut your minds down saying, why would I throw all this money and waste it? Remember, there are occasions you would need to understand. And part of our uh, philosophy at the Murthy Law Firm is to empower you, to educate you as employers who are processing immigration petitions for the benefit of your employees and the company to be profitable and bring in global talent that you need. So we are so honored and happy to be part of your team and your process. On behalf of Aaron Finkelstein, Anna Stepanova, and our entire multi-law firm team, we want to thank you for joining us today. And we very much look forward to continuing to help you and your employees as we deal with another tempestuous H-1B cap season that we're all expecting starting, I guess, April 1st of 2017. And I also want to thank our recording uh, professional, Jim, and everybody in our firm that is so engaged in providing this fabulous service for you all. Thank you and have a good rest of the day.